Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, Lord, as we come to this time in our worship service, where we open your word, God, we pray today that you would send your spirit to help. Lord, we pray that you would hide me behind your cross. God, that your word would be boldly proclaimed. God, we pray that anything that comes from my lips, Lord, that is not the truth of your word, God, would be quickly forgotten. God, we pray that you would be glorified, that your word would be magnified and illuminated to your people today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be seated, please. So our text this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 3. I will admit there was a conversation in the foyer this morning that was interesting about the, the good things about expository preaching. I'm not sure I agree today. Pastor David encouraged me a long time ago when I started, first started preaching to preach systematically, expositorily through the book of 1 Peter 3. And today we come to a fun one. It has been a challenge but a pleasure to study this text. Before we get into 1 Peter 3, I want to take us to another text in Peter, the next book over, in 2 Peter chapter 3. I think this is very relevant as we start our service this morning, that we read from 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 18. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I submit to you today that our brother Paul was not the only one who sometimes is hard to understand. I'll tell you that this passage, for me, fits the bill quite well. So as we wrestle with this passage this morning, I I pray that we will not be carried away with the error of lawless people, like Peter says here, and lose our own stability, but we will indeed grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I've decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So brothers and sisters, if we preach that this morning. If we hear that this morning, we'll be okay. So our text is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. This section, going all the way back to to verse 8, is about the suffering for righteousness sake. So we'll read here um, verses 18 through 22. For Christ 
also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God bless the reading of his word. If you will remember a few months ago, back in April, I preached on the, the verses prior to that, 13 through 17. We saw many aspects of the suffering of man. We saw that the suffering of a Christian is inevitable. If we walk in the way that the Lord instructs us, the, Lord, the world will hate us for it, and we will, dis, we will suffer discomfort in this life. We also saw that there's no reason for us to fear the suffering of this world, to fear the suffering of men. As in Matthew 10, 28, the Lord told us, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And lastly, we saw that the hope of the gospel will overcome the suffering of this world. And that is what we will take up this week. The title of the message this morning is Effectual Suffering. This passage is rich in doctrine. This morning I will attempt to keep our focus on the completed work of Christ and his effectual suffering on the cross. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will see that Christ's suffering on the cross was effectual and atoning for the sins of all those who are called according to his purpose. We will look at this under three main points. One, the Lord will preserve a people for himself. The Lord will preserve a people for himself. Two, through faith, God will save those people by his grace. Through faith, God will save those people by his grace. And three, those people were bought and paid for by Christ's suffering on the cross. Our first point this morning is that the Lord will preserve a people for himself. Make no mistake, this is the work of God, not of man. It's not about what man has done or will do. It's about what God has done and will continue to do. Verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Who is us? If we remember back to the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter addresses his letter in chapter 1 to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This was not ethnic Israel. This was not uh, only those of Jewish descent. It was to the elect, the people who believed, who had faith in Jesus Christ, who were facing persecution and in the dispersion. They were believers, very similar to you and I. Some Gentiles, some Jews. 
And I think we could relate to where they were at. We have not seen the persecution that they saw yet, but we can relate. We see it coming in our culture. Peter reminds them here in in chapter 3 and us that Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. This is not a question of whether he will or he won't when he says he might bring us to God. It's more a, these are the means that he is going to use. These are the paths that are going to come forward for us to bring us to God. And we can see that as we look through many other scriptures. One that's, that's very uh, similar, that very, uh, very good illustration of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. As usual, we will be turning a lot this morning. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 20. When your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh, and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in, and give us the land that he swore to to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Did you catch that? He said that he brought us out that he might bring us in. He brought them all out, but if we remember, he didn't bring them all in. There were some who died wandering in the wilderness. God does not preserve all people. We're not universalists. He brings in his people. And we see that, that he might preserve us alive. What a blessing that is, that he will preserve his people alive. When we get into the next part of our focus text this morning, this is... Um, This is where we can get bogged down a little bit. The end of verse 18, 19, and the first part of verse 20. It says, Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Now, I have studied this many ways and looked at many different um, philosophies, many different scholars who have have said a a lot of really good things, and there are a lot of very plausible arguments. And I come before you today unsure. (laughs) I don't don't know. I'm not sure what he meant here. One argument that, that that I thought made a lot of sense was that 
Uh, this, is, this is a proof text to the Apostles' Creed when Christ descended to hell. And he proclaimed his victory over sin and death. I think that's a plausible argument. And I can, and I can be okay with that. But for our point today, I think where this fits in the passage of Scripture that, that Peter is writing here, is that, like I said before, with the children of Israel, not all will come through. Not all will be saved. There are those spirits who are in prison, who are bound and in bondage, who won't be saved. But God will preserve a remnant, his people. He will preserve them. Peter talks a lot about the days of Noah. And it's, it's helpful to be reminded of the language in Genesis about Noah. So turn with me to Genesis 6. And you might want to put a mark there because we're going to refer to this several times. Genesis 6 and 7. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 13. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. With this earth. What a blessing that he found righteousness in Noah. God goes on to give the account of, of how he will destroy the earth and the instruction to Noah of, of how he is to build an ark, how he is to, to construct this giant boat that can preserve the lives of his elect and those animals that he purposed to use. Did you hear that, did you hear that the earth was corrupt? How, how often do we hear people talk, or do we participate in the talking today, of, of how terrible this land is, how terrible the earth is today, how bad people are? I'm, I'm probably guilty of that myself. It's never been this bad before. I don't think it's as bad as it was in the days of Noah. It says, every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Let that not be so on our earth today. But God saw that and was grieved by it and destroyed it. The rest of that, chapter 6 and chapter 7 on into 8, describes the situation. And in chapter 7... Verse 20, 
The Word of God says, The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. And he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. All flesh died. The water was 15 cubits above the mountains. That's 22 and a half feet above the mountains. That's a lot of water. God's wrath was on full display. Except the eight on the ark and those animals with them. He kept Noah and his family. He preserved them for his purposes. And we know that the entirety of the Old and New Testament points us to Christ and to the redemption of those elect who believe in him. He will preserve his people. And that brings us to our second point, that through faith, God will save those people by his grace. Peter uses this account of Noah and the flood in such a rich way. Still in Genesis here, in 6, 8, and 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then in 7.1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go unto the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. The earth was wicked, but God counted Noah as righteous. Here R.C. Sproul on, on Noah R.C. Sproul says, Noah is the righteous remnant in his day, a remnant God always establishes and preserves by grace. God's grace and favor are always unmerited by human beings, and Noah's integrity cannot earn God's acceptance for eternal salvation. God saves Noah as he saves us, as a free, unconditional gift that Christ finally purchases with his own blood. So just like with us, Noah found grace. He found, he found that acceptance in God because of his faith. The writer of Hebrews, uh, it's, it's fitting that we read Hebrews 9 this morning because 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, there's tons of this language through there that, that is such a, a good um, reminder for us. Turn to Hebrews 11. we will hear how the writer of Hebrews attributes Noah's righteousness to his faith in God. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their condemnation, their commendation, excuse me. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. But faith, by faith, 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Noah was counted as righteous. Noah built an ark 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high on dry ground, not in a seaport. Now, we don't know exactly where this was built at. It's probably somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers quite a ways inland from any large body of water. Kind of in the middle of the country, if you will. For you football fans, to put this in perspective, that is more than one and a half times the length of the football field. If you're standing on the goal line, you look to the other goal line, add 50 to it. That's a big boat, y'all. And he did this on faith. No one had ever even dreamt of anything like this. Do we have that much faith? Noah did, and the Lord used it to preserve him. The Lord covered the earth with water. It was said 15 cubits above the mountains. 22 and a half feet below the water was the top of the mountains. So to put this in perspective, the land surrounding Mount Ararat, where the, where the ark came to rest, the plains surrounding that were two to 3,000 feet above sea level. The highest peak is over 16,000 feet. Today, if you look around, we're somewhere between two and 300 feet. We had three miles of water on top of us. You think the power of Hurricane Harvey floods were bad? No. No. We saw how, how destructive water can be. Yes, we did. We did. But just a small, a small inclining of of how destructive water could be. Noah needed an ark to physically save him and his family from the utter, utter destruction of the flood. And because of his faith, God counted him righteous. God made a way and preserved his life. Back in 1 Peter 3, Peter equates the water that Noah and his family were brought through safely to the water of baptism. Now, it's, it's interesting to me that God uses um, the same means by which he destroyed the earth as a sign for the regeneration of his people. The, the Apostle Peter held baptism in very 
high regard. If we remember back to Acts chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but the sermon at Pentecost, especially the, the last part, 37 through 41, when, when Peter preached Christ crucified and, and people came to believe, they said, what should we do then, brother? And he said, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And in verse 41 it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter held baptism in high regard. Chapter 29 in our confession is helpful here. It's a short chapter. Only four paragraphs, I'll read it all. Paragraph 1 says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Paragraph 3, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is, not, is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then paragraph 4, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. Baptism is important, and it's a sign, it's a sign of our covenant relationship with our Lord. Or as Peter writes in verse 21, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism isn't magic water. It doesn't mysteriously fix all of our problems. It doesn't mean that all i got to do is go jump in the water and I'm saved. No, baptism is an appeal to God. And obedience to the ordinance he gave his church. And those who participate in these type of things... These are the people that God will preserve, not because of what they did, but because of what he did. And we can read in Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 14. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiveness, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This is, he set aside, nailing it 
to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Praise God. Those who were buried with him and baptized, those who Christ Jesus the Lord, who received Christ Jesus the Lord, who walked in him, who were rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, those were buried in baptism with him and raised through the powerful working of God. That is grace. That is the grace of God that he uses to save his people. And we know and trust from our Apostle Paul's writing in Ephesians 2. God saves his people by grace through faith. And as we read this in Colossians, the point that Christ nailed it to the cross. That brings us to our third point here this morning. Those people, those people whom he saved, they were bought and paid for by Christ's suffering on the cross. Back in our focus text, in, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, this paragraph is bookended by Christ's death and his resurrection. In chapter 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then at the end of, 20 and, and at end of 21 and 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It is his work and suffering on the cross that saves sinners. He suffered once, just once. We read it this morning in Hebrews 9. We can, we can see in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10, the same type language. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Hebrews 7, 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There is no more need of sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, we see the same type language. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings... You have not desired, but a body that you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offering and burnt offering and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Those who received Jesus, the sacrifice was only needed once. Peter says the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in time we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of, righteousness of God? Because of the sacrifice and suffering of Christ on the cross. He is the propitiation of sin for those who have faith in him. Romans 5 tells us in verses 8 through 11, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have reconciliation. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, the Lord saved us. The Lord died, suffered on the cross for his people. That is God's grace. The suffering of Christ was unimaginable. When we think about the crucifixion of our Lord, who was beat, brutally beaten, made to carry his own cross. His flesh was pierced with nails. His bones were broken to, hung, to be hung on a cross. And what was his cry? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If that doesn't exemplify the just for the unjust, I don't know what does. When they were torturing him, he said, forgive them. It is, it is on his merit alone, his suffering alone, that we have any hope. Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Through faith in him we have received his promised Spirit. And lastly, our pastor read for us this morning in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, say, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Dear believer, Christ's suffering on the cross was effectual for atoning for the sins of you 
and for me. If you have that faith, by his wounds, you're healed. What a great and awesome promise. By his wounds, you're healed. In our text, Peter closes this paragraph by reminding the reader that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, he is in his place of prominence, reigning over his kingdom, making intercession for those people whom he preserved. And as we come to a conclusion this morning, I hope we can see that because of his suffering, the blood sacrifice, the burial, his death, the burial and resurrection, we have been granted access to the throne of grace. Just as Noah needed a physical ark to be delivered from the, blood, from the flood, God's people needed the ark, who is Jesus Christ, to deliver them from the bondage of sin and death. Without him, we have no hope. His suffering completed that for us. So I would ask you this morning, are you one of those who God will preserve? Have you, grant, have you been granted faith by grace? Were your sins bought and paid for by the blood of Christ? Was Christ's suffering on the cross effectual in atoning for your sins? Is this real to you today? If you do not know Christ, if you have never called on the name of Jesus, if you have not repented and believed, I pray that today would be the day the Lord would grant you true faith and repentance. Let us pray. Our holy and majestic God, Lord, my prayer today is that you would illuminate yourself to the lost among us. God, that, that your word would be real to them. God, we pray that you would use your word, Lord, to edify your saints. God, that we would, that we would be better disciples of you. And Lord, that we would hunger and thirst more for your word. Lord, that we would Lord, that we would take great comfort knowing, Lord, that you sacrificed once for all of us. We are grateful to you, Lord. We know that it is on your merit alone that we have any hope. And we pray, God, that that would be true for all in the hearing of your word today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.